Over the next six weeks, we're going to ex be exploring what I think is, is one of the most important pieces of the good news that Jesus and his disciples lived and preached. This series, which I've titled If Jesus is Lord, couldn't come at a better time. Just this past week, we've seen on our TVs the horrible events that have been happening in the United States. Now, I'm not much of a political guy, simply because I just don't think any politician or party is going to lead people toward Jesus or the ethic that Jesus taught. I believe that only the gospel that the New Testament presents can change how sins affect the human race. I believe that only the work of the cross and the presence of the Holy Spirit that turns a sinner's heart toward Jesus being their Lord can actually change the world. Vice President Mike Pence said a statement that is exactly right. He said, violence will never win, only freedom does. Now, I'm not sure he meant it the way I took it. I'm assuming he was probably talking about democracy. But if he means that the only way to freedom is through Jesus being the Lord of our world, then yes, I think he's on to something. I was horrified to see the violent protesters carrying signs that used the name of Jesus. There was nothing Jesus-like about what happened this week. In fact, the only similarity would be the connection to the violence of the mob that called for the violence of the cross. That killed Jesus Christ. You see, if you've read the biblical narrative about Jesus Christ, the one we Christians hopefully believe is the Lord of God's kingdom and our lives, the Messiah, then you'll know what I'm talking about. It was the people and the state that used violence to kill, but little did they know the death they pleaded for through violence would be the one thing that would offer all of humanity true freedom. The kind of freedom that democracy just can't ever bring. So the vice president is right. Only freedom can win. Violence will never win. But little did they know it would be the violence of Jesus being hung on a Roman cross that actually brings this freedom, not a constitution or some political leader or party. The Bible is clear that freedom can only be found through Jesus Christ. In fact, it was the violence of the cross that calls us to a different way of life. The way of Jesus which calls for a non-violent, enemy-loving, turning-the-other-cheek, suffering-servant way of life. The cross actually calls us to live the opposite of what the state and the people used the cross for. This is what I want to spend the next six, six weeks looking at in the scriptures. I plan on teaching you what the Gospels have taught me. That the cross calls for an end to violence, an end to sin, and an end to selfishness. Instead, through the cross and his resurrection, Jesus calls us to live as people who love their enemies in an age of violence. There's no government or democracy that will bring this kind of radical freedom only Jesus. So this week is the introductory sermon, and it's going to be a little bit teachy. You might actually kind of find it boring at times, but I'm going to spend some more time unpacking for you the historical background of the New Testament and why the people, specifically the Jews, believe that the Messiah that they were waiting for would come as a warrior 
Yet, the Jesus, we call the Messiah, actually came as the opposite. I'm going to walk you week by week through the New Testament, showing you that Jesus taught and lived a life of nonviolence and how he calls the church to be the people who live this love-filled, nonviolence, radical lifestyle. So today, I hope to set the historical atmosphere, so to speak, for us to understand just how significant Jesus' actions and teachings were in the world that he was living in. And then next week, we'll look at the G how Jesus' actions in the gospel. The times where Jesus was given opportunity to become a warrior king, but instead he did the opposite. Then, in week three, we'll take a deeper look at what Jesus teaches about killing and violence, specifically in his famous Sermon on the Mount. Week four, we'll, we'll expand our exploration of what Jesus taught into the rest of the Gospels. And this will help give us a complete understanding of what exactly Jesus taught about love and non-resistance. Then in week five, we'll expand into the rest of the New Testament. And this will help us to see how Jesus' disciples interpret what Jesus taught them and how they taught others, and more importantly, how they lived what they taught. And finally, in week six, I'm going to address the most common, yeah, but what if? The questions that people always use, including Christians, to say that there is justification for violence. And then Pastor Tamil and I, we're going to wrap up this topic with a question and answer service and podcast. So let's get going. Virtually every New Testament scholar, whether liberal, conservative, Catholic, or Protestant, agrees that the gospel Jesus announced and proclaimed was the kingdom of God. We all agree that Jesus spoke of a kingdom, that he uses kingdom language to describe why he came, and he tells his disciples to go and announce the coming of this kingdom. There's a reason he uses this language and a reason so many people respond in a negative way to this kingdom announcement that Jesus gave. At the core of Jesus' teachings about the kingdom was the claim that the long-expected Messiah, uh, Messianic Messiah, the time of peace, a time of justice, forgiveness of sins, and restoration of Israel, was actually breaking into history in his person and his work. Now, most Christians are like, yeah, so, but, but let me tell you, this is exactly why so many miss the significance of the gospel. Why Jesus isn't Lord of their life. Instead, they just believe in some political religion that changes nothing and often entices violence and hate. It's super important, folks, to notice something when you read the Gospels. Notice how when Jesus teaches, he puzzled and astonished his contemporaries. The Gospel narratives have a tension that we often miss. Now, please don't miss this. Pay attention to it because it's so important to understanding Jesus. The tension was all about the kind of kingdom Jesus talked about. It wasn't what the people expected. It was strikingly different from everything a first century Jew would have ever expected. Mostly because Jesus rejected the widespread messianic idea of conquering a conquering military hero. You see, the first century wasn't that different from us right now. They were looking for a leader, a king, a hero to solve their problems. 
someone to lead them into a democracy where they would find so-called freedom. It's important that we dive into this for the next few minutes in order to understand the implications of Jesus' messianic understanding compared to the messianic expect expectations of his day. They were drastically different, and, and this caused huge tensions, so we need to understand the background so that we can understand just how radical and challenging Jesus' teachings would have actually sounded to most of the Jews. In 587 BC, Babylon conquered the kingdom of Judah, destroyed the capital city Jerusalem and its temple, and took Judah and its leaders into exile in Babylon. These events are significant because they, they fundamentally challenge the basic belief that God had given the land of Israel to Abraham's descendants forever and that the one God of the universe was uniquely present in the temple of Jerusalem. It was the people's sinful failure to obey God's law, their prophets explained, that was the reason for their national destruction and exile. But the prophets also spoke about the hope of a future return from exile and a restora restoration of God's presence in a new rebuilt temple. And so make sure you get this straight. The Jewish people believed that God's presence was in the temple. So no temple meant no more of God being present with them. This was huge. Because without God, they would be lost. They would lose every battle and be ruined. This narrative is a huge part of the Old Testament. The prophets calling the people back to obedience to God's law in order to restore God's presence through building another temple. So there were modest movements kind of throughout the biblical story that give the people glimmers of hope. We see this in, in books like the book of Ezra and Nehemiah in the latter half of the 5th century BC, where attempts were made to restore the Jewish nation. But nothing significant, no strong, independent Jewish kingdom emerged out of any of these movements or narratives. The people, they were suffering under deep oppression, and many of the Jews scattered throughout the Near East. There was attempt after attempt to restore the Jewish kingdom, but nothing seemed to work. The people, they dreamed of a kingdom like in the time of David. You see, David was a warrior king who led the people to become one of the greatest kingdoms, and his son built the temple where God would dwell. These were the good old days to the Jews. If only God could give them another warrior king like that, all their problems would be solved. This was the common belief that the only way the Jewish people would ever be great again, free from oppression, and able to live their faith in God, would be through a king that would lead them into a new kingdom. They expected a David-like king. And when we read the scriptures, it doesn't take long to actually agree with them. It's through the line of David that scripture says that this king would come, that this Messiah would come. And according to Jew, the Jewish historian Josephus, who is probably one of our best sources outside of the New Testament, this hope for a messianic warrior king was still the dominant hope even in the first century AD. He writes about many violent rebellions, some of which were viewed as messianic, but all of which failed to bring the people any long-standing liberation. 
in the Jewish texts from the 200 years before and after the birth of Jesus, they speak of the Messiah and his central task being the liberation of Israel via military means and the cleansing of or restoration of the Jerusalem temple. You see, it often it all centers on the temple for the Jewish people because that's where God's presence is. But there's nothing in Jewish writing, such as the Targum, about a Messiah that would suffer. Only a Messiah that would conquer. They actually believed that there would be a final war against the Gentiles that would usher in their redemption. Within this, the Jews also believed in the end of and like the end of the old age, they would call it, and the arrival of the new age, which they called the Messianic Age. And their apocalyptic literature loved to use this kind of language and cosmic imagery. But it's important to understand that actually Jewish belief in the Messianic age had nothing to do with the world ending at all. Instead, it was about this final liberation of Israel from her pagan enemies. Now, this is interesting because there are many texts in Scripture and other Jewish writings that speak of a violent war that would overthrow the pagans and usher in an age of peace. Yet there are also many passages in the Old Testament that speak of a future leader and a time that will bring universal peace. The book of Isaiah is especially filled with these kinds of texts, such as Isaiah in chapter 9. I'm just going to read a few passages in Isaiah for you. In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 5 to 7, it says, Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. You see how we can't look to government to solve the world's problems? because the government will be on the shoulders of the Messiah. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God and Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. Verse 7, Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And if we jump ahead to Isaiah chapter 11, we read in nine verses, Isaiah chapter 1 to 9, a shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Now listen to what he says. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy with justice. He will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips. He will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live within, the, sorry, the wolf will live with the lamb and the leopard will die with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. 
The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And if we jump back to Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 to 4, it says, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from, from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many people. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Now listen to what it says here. Nations will not take up swords against nations, nor will they train for war anymore. We know from the Dead Sea Scrolls and other documents from this period that, that's around the time of Jesus that many Jews understood Isaiah 2, 9, and 11, the texts that I just read to you, to be proof texts for a messianic period. And the New Testament writers clearly apply these same texts to say that Jesus is the Messiah that Isaiah is talking about. It's interesting, though. The Jews at the time of Jesus, despite these texts in Isaiah, still believed that the Messiah coming would bring war in order to bring peace. A war that God would once again lead Israel through that would put the David-like king back into the onto the throne and make their nation great again so that they could freely live as a Jewish nation. This led to many violent rebellions and even created different strains of Judaism. The Zealots, for instance, were a group of Jewish believers that would have considered themselves kind of a messianic party, so to speak. This band of Jews caused all kinds of violence and disruption. In 167 BC, things started to get really bad. Not only were the Jews oppressed by having to pay huge taxes, the Hellenistic rulers, Hellenistic really just means Greek, the Greek rulers, the Roman rulers, they, in Palestine, they added religious persecution to their already heavy taxation. The Jews lost their right to worship, and a statue of a Greek god was put in the middle of the temple court. I think it was Zeus. This set off many of the Jews and caused a rebellion. One that actually worked for a little while. Historically speaking, this rebellion led by a man named Judas Maccabeus led a number of bloody battles that drove the Hellenistic rulers out of Palestine and secured 100 years of religious and political freedom. This was a big deal. The Jews had not had this kind of freedom for centuries. So some believe that Judas Maccabeus was the Messiah that they had been waiting for. But in 63 BC, Pompey's Roman soldiers conquered Palestine once again and ushered back in Roman rule. 
So Judas couldn't have been the Messiah because he died in battle. But this revolt, called the Maccabean Revolt, gave the Jews hope. So again, they were convinced that it was violence and war that would bring them the freedom that they were looking for. So now, under the Romans, the Jews continued to wait for a warrior king, despite these passages in Isaiah, and pockets of Jews would ramp up and try to fight, but they would always lose. This is what Jesus was born into. An era where the Romans ruled over everyone. The Jews had some rights, but they, they hated paying taxes and they begrudged living with a pagan culture. They believed in one God and the Gentiles around them worshipped many gods. They couldn't stand pagan culture and they would fight against it at any opportunity that they would get. Always violent because that was the context in which they believed that they would be delivered. They were looking for another Judas Maccabeus. Now I say all of this so that you can hear this next part through that lens. So I want you to think with that lens. I want you to think war, think fighting, hatred, tons of opinion, friction with the authorities, separation of people. You see, at this time, you had the Gentiles, which was the Romans, the Samaritans, the Essenes, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees, and of course, the Zealots, all with opinion on what was right and how things were supposed to play out. And they all hated each other. Doesn't this sound familiar? Now we have the conservatives and the liberals, the left and the right, the mainline Protestant churches and the evangelicals and the Catholics, the charismatics and the reformed, those who think prophets still exist and those who don't, those who think the government should follow Christ, Christian ethics, ethical beliefs and those who don't, those who think social justice matters and those who think it's some sort of left-wing conspiracy. You see, the climate in today's world is very similar to that of Jesus' time. So now let's dive into some gospel passages and read them with this climate in mind. You see, Jesus enters the scene as a baby, and then we hear very little about him. But right away, this piques my interest because why would a warrior choose to come as a baby? If God was going to send a warrior, why would he come as a child? Now, anyway, I, I talked about that at Christmas, but don't lose the significance of that. A baby, non-threatening and vulnerable. Now, at the beginning of Mark's gospel, he summarizes Jesus' whole message in one simple passage. If we turn to Mark chapter 1, Verse 15, Mark gives us the thesis of Jesus' ministry. The whole reason why Jesus came in the first place is summed up in this one verse. Jesus says this, The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, it's super important to hear this language, the kingdom. There it is. Jesus declaring that he is announcing the kingdom of God. This is what they have been waiting for. But, but wait, wait. He came as a baby. 
And now he's a man who was a carpenter from Nazareth, and Scripture tells us that nothing good comes from there. Jesus declared that the kingdom of God was arriving, and, and it, this declaration would have sparked enormous excitement among Jesus' contemporaries. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says that God's kingdom to the Jew in the village in the first half of the first century meant the coming vindication of Israel, victory over the pagans, the eventual gift of peace, justice, and prosperity. In other words, this announcement of the kingdom was a big, big deal. So why didn't every Jew rejoice and jump at the chance to follow Jesus? Well, it's simple. He wasn't what they expected. As we're going to see moving through this series, Jesus fundamentally reinterpreted his people's hopes for the messianic kingdom. This becomes super clear when Jesus rejects the violent revolutionary's call to take up arms against the Romans. Instead of urging rebellion against the Gentiles in Rome, Jesus calls his followers to carry their, their oppressor's bags a second mile. Instead of urging slaughter of the godless conquerors, Jesus urges his people to love their enemies. And he's constantly saying weird stuff like in the Gospel of Luke chapter 19, verse 42. Listen to this. He says, If you, even you, had only known on this day, what would bring you peace? He's talking about Jerusalem, right? It says as he approaches Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if, if you, even you, had only known on this day, what would bring you peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. Now, as we work our way through this six-week series, you'll see why simple things Jesus says create all kinds of problems. Some believe he is the Messiah and others don't. But even his own followers constantly try to turn him into a warrior king. We will see more of that next week, but the, the people struggle with Jesus because he's not what they thought he was supposed to be. Yet, there's much about, what, about who he is that excites them. The miracles, the healings, the caring for the oppressed, all of these things capture an audience in both good and bad ways, all because they had preconceived ideas of who he should be. So let me ask you something. Is it, is it possible that you have a preconceived idea of who you think Jesus is supposed to be? Do you have a preconceived idea of what you think the world today is supposed to be and how Jesus and the church is supposed to interact in it? Maybe you miss important pieces of the gospel story because you have presuppositions of how Christianity should work or what being a Christian should actually accomplish in our world. History tells us that when people believe something, uh, should be like a certain way, they have a hard time seeing anything different. But what if you're missing something? Missing something in your faith because you refuse to open your mind and heart to something different. I really believe that this is one of the problems today in the Christian church. I think that we're acting just like the Jews did in the time of Jesus. 
Some of us act and live like Jesus calls us to, and some of us prefer to fight about being right, but there is a difference. As we close today, I want to challenge you to become open to thinking bigger. Be open to hearing each word of the gospel story within its historical context, instead of how you think it should be read. Ask yourself what you think the good news is. Would that good news sound like good news to your neighbor who doesn't know Jesus and drives you nuts? Does your life look like Jesus? Is he the Lord of your life? Or like Mike talked about last week, do you just believe in God? Or is Jesus your Lord of everything that you do? This week, folks, I want you to ask God to reveal your presuppositions. We all have different presuppositions. All of us are guilty of it. The key piece is learning to recognize them so that you can approach the text understanding the presuppositions that you already have. So I want you to ask God to reveal your presuppositions as we work through exploring together what Jesus has to say about his kingdom of peace. We serve the Prince of Peace. And so his people, the children of God, are the peacemakers in a world and an age of violence. As we go through the rest of this series, I'm excited to start to explore what the scriptures say about this, and I'm pretty convinced that by the time we're done, you'll have walked through at least a seminary course level of what this looks like. We're going to use the scriptures to really unpack what it is that Jesus is presenting himself to be and what his followers believed him to be and how that translates into how we should live today. And so today I just want you to ponder those things. Ask God to reveal your presuppositions, the things you think are the right things, and step a little bit to the side and open up your mind and your heart to hear what it is that the Spirit is going to say to you through his scriptures. Will you pray with me? Father God, I thank you, Lord, that you came, that you chose to come in the flesh as a child. I thank you, Lord, that you chose to come as a child differently than what a warrior king would be. And Lord, I pray that as we open our hearts and we open our minds, that we open up ourselves to your Holy Spirit. I pray that we would be open to hear what your gospel will teach us through these next six weeks. I pray that you would reveal to us the context in which you want us to learn it. And I pray, Lord, that you would work on each of us individually through our devotion time and our reading of scripture, and that you would call us to a life of being like your son, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we're going to explore what you want us to be, what you want us to be as a church, what you want us to be as individuals. 
And so I pray, Lord, that you would journey with us through these next six weeks as we explore your Son, the Messiah, our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Speak to us this week. Show us and reveal us revelations about who your Son is. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace where there is hatred. Let me sow where there is injury. Pardon. Where there is doubt. There. Where there is despair. Despair. Oh, where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, the light. Oh, divine master. Grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console. To be understood as to understand. To be loved as to love, for it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen.